You're listening to a special presentation at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. Well, thank you for that incredibly kind uh, prayer introduction. Um, Greatly appreciate that (laughs) and appreciate your friendship, Lee. Well, uh, it's uh, good to be with you men once again. Uh, I was going to, to point out that I wore my obligatory lumberjack shirt for a men's retreat. Like, I think you have to bring one of those to a men's retreat, right? Or you lose your man card. So I brought two, actually, just in case. Um, but uh, anyway, well, uh, we are considering here today, uh, once again, using one's strength to serve. Last night, we considered having the mind of Christ and uh, t- today, using one's strength to serve, particularly as what we considered last night flows downhill to us, uh, how we are to be like Christ, uh, practice always flows from right theology. Well, it also flows from bad theology, but it ought to flow from good theology, right? But what we think, what we believe, then impacts how we live. So good theology leads to good practice. So last night was good theology about uh, the heartbeat of Christ and uh, how we are, are to live. Part two, then, uh, part two, by extension, is how we are to live like Christ, using one's strength to serve. So as we consider uh, here this morning serving, let's uh, turn our attention to John chapter 13, where we see, once again, this, this picture of Christ and His call to us to be like Him, washing feet. We didn't... Uh, consider it in content last night, even though I think it was mentioned just in passing about we are called to serve, we are called to wash feet. Uh, Once again, I'm a concepts guy, so we're going to be in a bunch of different scripture passages here this morning, jumping around, weaving them all together to to see the themes that come out. Uh, So hopefully that's uh, not a, a trouble for you as we bounce around in various places. You guys will go home and you'll tell your wives, like, all the guy did was just read a bunch of different scripture passages for like two hours. Um, that's how I fill the time. That's, uh, but, uh, <laughs> all right, John chapter 13. Let's uh, take a look there. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, To one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also uh, ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And I'll, I'll stop there. Now, uh, when I was in a different denomination in, in high school, uh, that denomination took this example quite literalistically, and we had to engage in feet washings every now and then, and that was a kind of a bizarre experience, uh, high school students uh, washing one another's feet and so forth. But, but setting that aside, certainly that's uh, not, not uh, the literal application that Jesus is speaking to here. Sinclair Ferguson helpfully draws out in his treatment of uh, this taking place, that as Jesus takes off his outer garments and sets them aside, it is a picture of him setting aside his glory and lowering himself, humbling himself, as we see in uh, Philippians chapter 2, setting aside the realms of glory and the equality with God and coming and serving us to the point of death, needing to cleanse us from sin. That's why he says to the apostle Peter, if I don't serve you in this way, you have no part with me. If you don't let me cleanse you from sin, as I've come from the heavenly realms to come and deliver you from your sin and misery and death, and then you have no part with me at all. And uh, after he finishes washing in this way, then he puts his outer garments back on. It's his ascension and his session at the right hand of the Father. He reclaims that glory. Uh, Christ as man earns in his service what he has always rightly had as God. And then he calls us to be like him. He is a picture of, of the chief servant, and he is calling us to be like the captain of our faith, calling us to follow his example here. Uh, I mentioned Sinclair Ferguson. He also, Sinclair Ferguson also says he finds it funny when people refer to him as senior pastor or senior minister. And there are some senior pastors or senior ministers uh, in our midst here today. He says it's an ironic title because it means first servant, uh, the first minister. (laughs) Uh, the first one to serve. And so uh, you can tell that to your senior ministers. You're my first servant. Uh, make sure you remind them that this, uh, this Lord's Day. No, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> see, senior ministers already suffer enough as it is. They're like Moses. They're the most afflicted on the earth. No, to treat, treat them well. But uh, we are to be the chief servants. So how is it that we are to serve? We'll consider different headings in the ways in which we are to serve like Christ. Uh, First, with regard to outsiders. So let's jump to Luke chapter 9 and see this picture of how not to serve outsiders. Luke chapter 9, and starting in verse 49... The first principle we see here is to not be sectarian in a divisive way, those outside of our group. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. He's not in the right presbytery, or he's not in the right denomination, or he's, you know, he's a little bit fringe there, Lord. (laughs) But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him. 
for he who is not against us is on our side. So here's one who is ministering in Christ's name just because he's not doing it in the exact right way that you think he ought to be doing it. Don't forbid him from ministering in Christ's name. But then it goes on uh, to to see another way of dealing with outsiders here. In verse 51, uh, we go on. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? Now now let me pause. Here are the sons of thunder, right? I can identify with these guys. Come on. <laughs> uh, they're opposing you, Lord. They're rejecting the Messiah. They're rejecting the servant of the Lord. And just as Elijah was rejected before you, we've seen that example when fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And so they send more people up to Elijah and fire comes down and consumes them. And they send up more and he's like, please don't let, don't make fire consume us again, you know, for a third time or what? Should we follow Elijah's example? It's fascinating what Jesus's response is. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Uh, some of your translations don't have that uh, textual variant there. I was, I was reading from the New King James. Uh, I, I am particularly convinced of that inclusion there with that textual variant. But, but regardless of, of the variant, uh, Jesus is still re- rebuking the thought that you would call down fire to consume your enemies who have not received uh, the gospel. And he says, in the textual variant, but he says, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. That mentality of, Lord, kill them. Just just slaughter them. It's not the heartbeat of the spirit of Christ. right? That, that's of another spirit. That's of another kingdom. <laughs> and uh, that's, a, that's a sharp rebuke to these, these sons of thunder. And then the example of Stephen and Paul with regard to outsiders, when Stephen was being stoned to death by those who rejected the gospel, or were at least rejecting it initially, because the Apostle Paul then will later uh, come to saving faith, as Stephen is being stoned to death, he prays for his murderers, that the Lord would not hold this against them. And Stephen's prayer is answered in the salvation of the Apostle Paul, as the Apostle Paul is the one who's overseeing his death. That's the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are rejecting the gospel because it's the exact same prayer that Stephen has for his murderers as Christ has for his murderers when he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the mentality of those who have not yet embraced the gospel, Lord, please open their eyes as opposed to destroy them. Lord, please, can I continue to serve them? Can I continue to care for them? Can you give me more opportunity that they might hear and believe? Or Paul's example, when the prophet tells Paul that he's going to go up to Jerusalem and he's going to be imprisoned 
and all of his church friends are saying, Paul, don't go. Don't go, Paul. And he's like, why are you breaking my heart? I have to go. This is a prophecy. I've set my face to Jerusalem. Just like the Lord Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, though it meant his death, Christ setting his face like flint to accomplish the gospel. Paul setting his face like flint to preach the gospel, though it meant his imprisonment and ultimately being murdered, uh, that he could take the gospel to Rome and even to Caesar's own household. This is the mentality of, let me serve those who do not yet know you, Lord. That that is a, a mentality that the world cannot comprehend, that halts people in their in their place, something is different about this person that he would love, even his persecutors. Pray for those who hate them. Well, what about in the workplace? So first with outsiders, secondly, in the work, uh, workplaces, we consider slaves and masters, and uh, you might say, whoa, 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 <laughs> slaves and masters. Uh, well, sometimes being an employee feels like being a slave. Bosses in the room... They're like, hey, hey, don't refer to us as slave drivers. But uh, I do think that there's import from the various places in the New Testament about slaves and masters to the workforce. It's not a one-for-one connection, of course. Uh, we, have, we have to be careful. But uh, I do think that there is, is application here. So let's, let's consider 1 Timothy 6, uh, 1 and 2. 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy Six, one and two. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and are beloved. So those who are believers, all the more, but even those who are not believers are worthy of all honor that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled, that we would conduct ourselves as as we're under the authority of others, whether believer or unbeliever, that we would engage them in all respect. Well, what about those who are in authority? What about uh, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3? I don't have the reference there for Colossians 3, but uh, as far as the the verses, uh, left that off. Sorry about the slide. But uh, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Now the application doesn't just go to those under the authority of those over them, but also those who have authority. Ephesians 6, 5, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Let me pause here. How easy it is to obey only when our boss's eyes are upon us, 
The boss comes in the room and the behavior changes. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm busy. I'm fast at work. Oh yeah. I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't surfing the internet at all. Uh, or whatever the case may be, right? It's, uh, it's so easy to obey as man pleasers and, and eye service, but constantly being conscientious employees working with all of our heart to serve those whom we are under, uh, and serving as though we are bringing glory to Christ. If, if we are to eat and drink to the glory of Christ, we are to be good employees to the glory of Christ, that we would, we would serve our companies well. But what about the masters? In verses 9 and, and following here, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. That is shocking language for first century slave owners with, with a culture where, where slavery was, was socially, culturally acceptable, that Paul would say such things to masters. And if that's true in that first century context, how much more so we who are freedmen and we who have employees and those who are under our care, how much more so for those who, who aren't masters, that we don't have slaves, right? That if we were to take this passage to its most logical conclusion, if, if the believers of Paul's day were to take this passage to its most logical conclusion, God shows no partiality, they would release their slaves and treat them as freedmen. That's the trajectory of the New Testament, is, is speaking against the cultural trappings of, of slavery. They're, they're working within the cultural settings of their day, but if taken to the logical conclusion, the slaves would be set free. So release all of your employees, right? That's, that's the application. Let them all go. No. <laughs> Fire them all. No, don't. Uh, just don't treat them like slaves. Don't get blood from a rock. Don't eke out every last bit of effort you possibly can, expecting them to work nights and weekends, even though they're paid as though they don't work nights and weekends. Care for them. Bless them with your oversight over them. And then Colossians 3. I see very similar teaching, parallel teaching with Ephesians, uh, parallel letters that were sent. But uh, Colossians 3. And where do those verses begin? Since I didn't include it in my notes. Uh, verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no par partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, this teaching is all the more shocking in light of the book of Philemon, if we understand the context of what's going on in the Colossian church, that if you just read on for a few verses later, we find Onesimus, this faithful friend and, and fellow servant with Paul, is uh, coming back, this, this converted slave is coming back uh, with the, the one who is carrying the letter, 
uh, to the Colossian church. So, so here's this runaway slave Onesimus who is carrying uh, the, the letter to Philemon and the letter to the Colossians that talks about masters treating their slaves well, not showing partiality, treating them as fellow brothers uh, in Christ, and how jarring of a teaching, how radical of a teaching that would be. So just flip over to, to Philemon then, and to see how Paul deals with this slave owner, Philemon, and the runaway slave Onesimus. He stole from his master, ran away as an unbeliever, ran to Rome to find quarter and protection because he should die. At the very least, he should be imprisoned until he can pay the debt off, which is impossible. He's a slave. There's no possibility for that, but he is worthy of death. And just notice how the Apostle Paul reasons with Philemon, this slave owner. Starting in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, now let me just pause, but I'm going to keep doing this as we, as we move throughout the book of Philemon. That uh, if Paul were being false and just putting on pretense, he would just be buttering up Philemon. And it would be manipulative and entirely inappropriate and worldly, really, as far as a means to just try and get what he wants and massage obedience out of Philemon. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is doing. This is the Word of God. This is true. The Apostle Paul is presenting it truthfully. And accurately, he's saying, Philemon, I know of your love toward all the saints. And here's now converted Onesimus, converted under the Apostle Paul's ministry in Rome while the Apostle Paul's in jail. He's a brother. (laughs) And he's saying, Philemon, I know your love for all the brothers. He's paving the way, right? Uh, Verse 6, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You've continued to care for the brethren. You refresh them. You bring blessing to them. Again, if he's just buttering it up, buttering Philemon up, this is entirely inappropriate. But he's paving the way for the appropriate obedience of this slaveholder. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Here's the apostle. Here's the senior apostle. Here's the authority in the church who's suffering for Christ's sake, who's in prison. And he's saying, if I want to pull the apostle card, if I want to command you, I could. But I'm not going to do that. In fact, the way that Paul introduces himself at the beginning of the letter, I skipped over it, He refers to himself as a prisoner, not as an apostle. He's not appealing to his authority. He's appealing to this brother on behalf of doing what is right. So verse 9, Yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Again, if this is manipulative, 
He's just trying to garner pity and and sympathy. Look, I'm suffering. I'm a poor old man in prison, and I I don't have my cloaks that I'm going to ask Timothy to bring to me. No, uh, that's not what he's doing. He's he's speaking sincerely. (laughs) Again, I could command, but I'm not going to do so. I appeal for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. That's the, the meaning of Onesimus means useful, right? The, the one whose name is useful was useless because he stole from you. He ran away. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I love this brother. He has become my child in the faith. I am um, sending my very heart. It's as if I were there with you. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Oh, that you would have given me as a gift, uh, given him to me as a gift, that he could serve me here in prison so that that he can help with uh, feeding me, bringing me food and and caring for and, and continuing to see the gospel go forth here in Rome. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. Again, it's, it's not legalism. It's not mere obedience. It's appeal. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Paul's not presuming to know the providence of the Lord. He's saying, Onesimus has come to Rome. He's, he, he's been converted. Maybe this is the very reason why he ran away in the first place, that the gospel could come to him and that he could come back to you and you have a brother, no longer a slave, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more so to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Again, the logical conclusion of the New Testament writings is that slaveholders would free uh, their their slaves. And, And that's what Paul's appealing to here, that you're not receiving him back as a bondservant who stole from you and is worthy of death. You're receiving him back as a brother in Christ. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul's going to say in just a minute how you would receive me. Get the guest room ready. (laughs) Basically like uh, roll out the red carpet and slaughter the fattened calf if I'm able to get out of prison and I'm able to come to you. Treat Treat Onesimus, Philemon, the way that you would treat me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, here's an old apostle who's in prison and who has no means of providing money for himself. Again, if this was false and manipulative, how inappropriate this would be. Yeah, charge it to my account. I can't pay it. Charge it to my account though. No, who's going to pay for it? The churches. The churches who gather collections for the apostle Paul for his ministry. He's saying, if, if you want to charge this debt as a literal debt, Onesimus owes you a debt. By all means, you can do so, and the churches will pay for it. Uh, Charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Now, if I wanted to, I could say, hey, you owe me eternal life because I brought the gospel to you. I'm not going to mention that. (laughs) Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. You know, he's not even stated what it is. And so at this point, he's not even stated explicitly what it is. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. 
At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. The obedience, of course, is, is, is crystal clear. Philemon would know what, what he's speaking to. But uh, he's saying, you're going to go above and beyond. Not only are you going to forgive this debt, not only are you going to receive him as a brother, not only are you going to not take him back as merely a slave, but as one of the church, uh, you're going to even be creative. You're going to get creative in your service to this brother. Oh, yeah, and get the guest room ready. <laughs> and, then, and then it goes on. So how is it that we treat those under us in the workplace? But doesn't that segue nicely as far as how Paul appeals to this man in the church, not as one who is under the apostle's authority, you must obey, just do what I say, I'm an apostle. Notice how he pleads with this man. You know, it's, it's like, like pastors or leaders, teachers in the church, right? We are to be pleading with men. We are to woo men to Christ. We are to shepherd people to Christ. We don't lead with a heavy hand, but gently so that they hear the voice of the good shepherd. They were saying, let me show you the most excellent way. Please come, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what Paul is doing here with Philemon. It's not a heavy hand at all. Do you, do you hear the gracious voice of the good shepherd? He's pleading with the gospel. That's not the strenuous use of the law of legalism or something of driving, like we're ranchers driving cattle. No, a shepherd who walks with sheep and cares for sheep. But when it comes to the rest of the church, not just uh, those who are in positions of leadership, those who rule and those who teach, that we would lead in such a way. But with regard to all in the church, we are not to seek the positions of, of prominence and the positions of uh, height. So let's turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Verses 7 through 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, as you think about tables of old, you know, you've, you've seen uh, paintings with uh, people sitting at those long tables of prominence and the, the guest of honor sat in the center at the head of the table and all those on either side or all those, you know, uh, in succession down beneath him. That as 
people sought to strategize where they were in the social standings. They're eyeing people up and understanding their, their wealth and their age and their, their prominence in society and so forth. And they're, they're trying to position and muster where should they sit so that they would be seen in their rightful place. We don't want people looking down on us uh, more prominent than that. And Jesus isn't advocating, take a false humility and, and falsely put yourself low. He's sincerely saying, it's just, it's just like what we saw with Philemon. It's, it's not manipulative. It's not underhanded, right? Sincerely take the position of lowest honor so that when people come and say, why, why are you there? Please move up. You're honored in front of all. Now, in this day and age, the idea was you invite prominent people to your home so that they would be able to repay it and you'd be invited to their home uh, in, in retrospect so that, that you are seen with those prominent people in their house so you'd return the favor. So Luke 14 goes on, uh, to verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Invite those who have no social standing. They can't invite you back to their house and, and repay it. How often in the church do we keep tabs of, oh, they've had us over a few times, we need to repay that favor. You know, we, we feel that implicitly, Right? Oh, oh, well, you know, we've had them over two or three times. They've never invited us. You know, there, there's a little bit of that, that gamesmanship, even in the church, right? And Jesus is saying, don't, don't do that. That's, that's the thinking of the world. Instead, serve. <laughs> Who cares if you're invited back? Who cares if it's returned? In fact, it's better that it not be returned because then your reward will be, be greater in heaven. There are some uh, counselees that, that I've been working with. Uh, Lee was talking about the uh, sex abuse scandal uh, and, and uh, the, the issue that I was a whistleblower for working with victim families uh, for many years now, going on three years working with this one particular family who were egregiously harmed. And every time uh, I meet with them, they thank me profusely. And I got to the point where I said, please stop thanking me. You're making my crown in heaven smaller. <laughs> we, we want our reward to be in heaven. Well, also with regard to seats of prominence, we're not to be respecters of persons. James chapter 2. James chapter 2. My brothers, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You see the sin that James is actually referring to, to say we're guilty of the whole law. Now he'll go on to say that's, that's true for the other commandments as well, but the one he's highlighting here is the, the sin of being a respecter of persons, of honoring people for their position and their prominence and for their relationships in the church. They're, they're related physically to the right people, and so we're going to give them a pass, or, or they have the most wealth. It's, it's kind of you know, it's a, it's a respectable sin. It's a sin that we wink at, at the church, in the church. We don't think of it as all that big of a deal. We, we show partiality to the sin of partiality. Church can be cliquish, and certain people don't break into other groups, and there are social circles even in our churches. When I was pastoring in Lafayette, Indiana, there was a, a man who came to our church, was living in his van in our parking lot for weeks upon weeks, and he would attend worship, and he was different from other homeless men that we had interacted with. You know, we, we had all kinds of, of homeless men show up just looking for money. They'd, they'd come, and then they'd be gone. We wouldn't see them for another eight months, and then they'd come back, oh, hey, you know, I have this medical bill or whatever, uh, but this man was different. Now, this man had a credible profession of faith, and yeah, he, he had uh, really messed up his life. I'm not um, minimizing that in, in any way, but uh, this was a man who sincerely wanted help and was willing to do the hard work necessary uh, to, to receive the help, not just, hey, give me a handout and do the work for me. We ultimately ended up getting him an apartment, and uh, we, we shepherded him through uh, his the end of his days in, into his death, I had the, the privilege of seeing him brought into the church and, and then uh, ushered into glory over the span of seven years. But we had visitors at the church one day when this homeless man was first coming to our church and just getting to know us before he had yet made his public profession of faith. <clears throat> and he was sleeping on the couch just outside of the auditorium, the, the sanctuary. And the visitors pulled me and one of the elders aside and said, you know, this doesn't look good for the church, that you have a homeless man sleeping on the couch. And we said, well, yeah, he, you know, he's had a rough time. And well, maybe if you could just make him sleep in the back room so we don't see him. Now this man, uh, this homeless man, when he took his public profession of faith, I've never heard somebody answer the vows in the way this guy did. You know, do you, do you vow to, you know, the Westminster standards based on the scriptures? Yep. Uh, do you believe Jesus Christ is Lord? Uh-huh. Yeah, I've never seen such a public profession of faith, but uh, certainly sincere. But that is an example of genuinely being a respecter of persons. Can we put that shabby, disheveled, a little bit smelly man in the back room? May it never be so, friends. Well, what about marriage? 
What about marriage? Ephesians chapter 5, that very familiar passage, tried and true passage, well-worn passage, but I think there are some aspects that we don't immediately see in our 21st century setting. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And I'll stop there. And we know that we're called men to serve our wives, that we have been delegated authority to lay down our lives for the sake of our wives, to serve them, to care for them, to care for our households. But we miss the scandalous language the Apostle Paul is engaging in here. Now, what I'm about to say, the liberals would latch onto and run to far too dramatic conclusions and emasculate us. That's not what I'm doing here, So, so please don't mishear me. But Paul is using domesticated language of the responsibilities of the woman of washing the children and being a seamstress for the children and clothing the family. And he's leveraging that domesticated language and saying, husbands, do you see how your wives care for the household and dote over her household in the same way? Use your strength and your abilities and your gifts to care for your wife and love your wife. Now, that's not the Apostle Paul, therefore, like, you know, ripping off our manhood and saying, I'm just going to set that over here. No, he's not emasculating us. He's saying, use your strength to care for her and to continue to see her sanctified unto the Lord Jesus Christ, shepherding her tenderly and wisely and well, not lording it over her, taking advantage of her. Similar image in 1 Peter chapter 3. Put your finger in Ephesians 5, because I'm going to flip back there in just a second to see another image in Ephesians 5 that I think we also miss there. We'll come right back to it. But 1 Peter 3, verse 7. This is in that section where uh, Peter has just spoken to wives that even if you have an unbelieving husband who doesn't obey the word, how she is to conduct herself in obedience to Christ and with uh, tenderness uh, and even all due submission to, to her husband. She's placed in this position of vulnerability, in this position of weakness, And to that situation, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, Peter hasn't just made an underhanded uh, shot and put down at women. Oh, they're weak and stupid. He's saying they're put in a position of vulnerability. The role that the Lord has entrusted to them is one of vulnerability. Don't take advantage of that. You could. You could take advantage of that. Instead, live with your wives in an understanding way. 
honor her as co-heirs. Do you see the position of, of prominence and honor that, that Peter is uplifting women, not putting them down? Oh, they're weak and dumb and stupid. Vulnerable. Therefore, honor and care for her. Then flipping back to Ephesians 5, we also see a picture in Ephesians 5 here where the husband is called to uh, care for the wife just like Jesus washes with the water of the word that he might present the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands. Jesus does not look on his bride and say, Hey, church, get your sins in line, and when you do, then I will be a good husband and bridegroom to you. Your sins are your issue. You take care of that. You see, Jesus views our sin as his problem. It's our sin, and he so much sees it as his problem that he's willing to die for our sin, that he might cleanse us from sin. He sees our ongoing sin so much our pro- uh, his problem and not our problem that he sanctifies us. He sees our indwelling sin and the remaining sin so much his problem that he will glorify us and present us in spotless, uh, without blemish glory. That's how Christ views our sin in the same way husbands. That doesn't mean you can sanctify your wives. It doesn't mean you can die for your wives and justify your wives. By no means. But it does mean you can't say, hey, wife, get your act in line. And once you get your act in line, (laughs) so often I see that in marriage counseling, that the husband and the wife, they're all pointing, they're pointing at each other. Well, if he would just get his act in gear, then our marriage would be okay. If she would just submit, then we would have a blessed marriage. But that's not how Paul is speaking to us husbands. I'm not speaking to the wives. The wives aren't here, right? I'm not speaking to them. That's not how he's speaking to us husbands. Husbands, take the log out of your own eye that you might be able to see clearly, right? Tend to your wife, care for her, see her sin not as her problem. Can you come alongside, care for, shepherd, love, minister? This is how we are to deal with those in our our care. Well, bringing it to conclusion then, Christ Speaking of the Christian life as a large umbrella, Christ says that we are like volunteers in the day of His power. In Psalm 110, King of kings, Lord of lords, that kingly psalm of Christ, He doesn't look at us as peons and just like mere vassals or something like that. But we are volunteers in the day of His power. He says to His disciples in John 15, before He goes to the cross, I no longer call you slaves but friends. The position of prominence that he gives us, friends with the Most High God. Do you remember? That's how Moses is described, the friend of God. What a place of honor. Do you remember why Jesus says the Father loves him? The Father loves the Son in John 10 because he is so manly and macho. The Father loves the Son because of his many accomplishments. The Father loves the Son because of His power and might. The Father loves the Son because He's ferocious in battle, or He is preeminent and crushes all of His enemies under His feet. The reason the Father loves the Son, what's the real answer? 
because I lay down my life for my sheep. The reason the Father loves the eternally lovable Son, there's never been an absence of love between the Father and the Son, but the reason the Father loves the Son is He lays down His life for His sheep. He serves those under His care. And then at the final judgment, what does Jesus say is praiseworthy and worthy of vindication before the Father and worthy of vindication before the onlooking world? In Matthew chapter 25, at the end of our earthly lives, when we will be openly praised, it's like unbelievable, openly vindicated, honored before the Lord and before men. In Matthew 25, his followers stand before the throne and he says, when I was hungry or thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison, you cared for me. And his followers are dumbstruck. They're not haughty. They're not arrogant. They're not pointing to their works at all. It's Christ who's pointing to their works. And and they're like, Lord, when did we do these things? When did we see you in these ways? Hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, in prison. And he says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The emphasis at the end, at the final judgment that Jesus sheds light on is how we look like Christ. (laughs) If we used our strength and our gifting and our ability to care for the least of these, his brothers, that we used our time and our energy and our talents to serve even the lowliest, that the Spirit of Christ has been at work in us through our lives and we look like Christ (laughs) because we serve like Christ would have us to serve. That's how we use our our strength, friends. As it was with Christ, may it always be so of his followers as well. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we've been all over the place in your scriptures once again. Lord, I pray that you would bring all of these disparate strands together and that you would impress upon our hearts all the more that we would care for those that you have entrusted to us. Lord, may our heads never be lifted up but may we be humble ones. And Lord, if you so choose to move us to different seats of honor, that is your prerogative. It is not ours, Father. Let us be content just to serve. And may Christ get the glory. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.